You're listening to a podcast from the Trinity Longroom Hub Arts and Humanities Research Institute. Welcome everyone to the penultimate seminar of this semester's early modern series. And today's will be a bit different from our usual format in that we've got a panel of speakers and all here to discuss one broad theme and that's Ireland and Empire. Um, in many ways, this is a very timely discussion historiographically and otherwise not least because it also marks the launch of Jane's outstanding new book, Making Empire, which explores the integration of empire, how the integration of empires, both British and European, um, meant in and for uh, Ireland. The panelists for today's discussion include Jane um, and other TCD historians, Michal Shaku and Kieran O'Neill. And joining us from UCD, we have Fanola O'Kane. And then each will briefly introduce their work, taking us from the near origins um, of empire to the current state of historiography. We're delighted also to have Nicholas Kenny, um, Emeritus Professor of History at the University of Galway to chair this discussion. Professor Kenny doesn't need any introduction. He's one of our best known historians of early modern Ireland, uh, especially renowned for his work on ideologies of colonization. And in particular, his work in Kingdom and Colony, along with many other publications, positioned Ireland's colonial experience in an Atlantic world context. And he's also made very valuable contributions in examining broader imperial influences, such as the influence of Spanish ideology on English policy in Ireland. Along with his books, including The Elizabethan Conquest of Ireland and Making Ireland English, he edited The Origins of Empire, which is the volume one of the Oxford History of the British Empire, another landmark publication in the field. So without further ado, I will hand over to Professor Kenny to kick off um, and chair our discussion. Uh, <clears throat> thank you very much, Susan, and you're all very welcome. And we are limited to three minutes each, uh, but there's nobody to discipline my time. But uh, <laughs> we're, we're not only celebrating making empire, but also we're celebrating Ireland, slavery, and the Caribbean, which has been edited by the two speakers on my right. And Mihalo Shukru is uh, the PI of a new research project in empire, which he hopes to get underway pretty soon. So that in that sense, all of the speakers by myself are heavily involved in real research relating to empire. That uh, I was asked to say, speak briefly on some of the historiographic points that bring us where we are today. And to start with 1998, uh, the publication of the first volume of the Oxford History of the British Empire, which I had been invited to edit. Uh, that in effect, at, at that particular point, going to 1998 and down to 2000, by which time the five volumes had been published, that imperial history in Britain had to a large extent been put on the back burner. Uh, that the historical preoccupations of Britain and indeed most European countries uh, in the decades before that were very nationally focused, so that in British history, for the early modern period, the burning issue was the origins of the English Civil War, the English Revolution. As you move forward in time, it was the origins of the Industrial Revolution. And as you move forward into the 19th and 20th centuries, it was uh, Britain and its place in, with the European continent and the origins of the First World War and its participation in the Second World War. So the Empire to a large degree had been forgotten, even though there were endowed chairs of imperial history uh, going back to the 19th century in most of the older universities. So that the uh, Oxford history of the British Empire was got underway with a view to giving those who had been involved 
in imperial history an opportunity of bringing together, giving a state of play as it was at the moment, giving directions how further research might take place. At that juncture, as people look backwards, they look backwards to the Cambridge history of the British Empire, which was a Victorian undertaking, which had been only brought to completion in 1925. And people looked at that with some degree of embarrassment in that it was addressing the questions of what benefits did the empire bring to Britain? What benefits did the empire bring to those who had been colonised? And in the 1925 volume, it was addressing the question of the extent to which the imperial experience had prepared the colonised for independence, for becoming independent members of a commonwealth which was then just being formed. So that, that was quite clearly embarrassing, but there had been a counter view, and the counter view had been to a large degree written outside Britain, to a large degree from India, and within Britain it had been written by Marxist historians. <coughs> now the second uh, benefit of the Oxford history of the British Empire, besides bringing together a state of play at that juncture and encouraging people to re-engage, uh, that it, a decision was taken to cannibalise the five volumes and to bring together the essays that related to particular places. And one consequence of this was that in 2004, uh, a, a volume appeared edited by Kevin Kenny, Ireland and the British Empire, which included the essays by Jane, Tom Bartlett and Deirdre McMahon, which had been in the original volume, but also it didn't include one by David Fitzpatrick, which who had done a splendid essay on the position of Ireland within the empire, but then Kevin Kenny wrote an essay himself where he treated on aspects that hadn't been done earlier, for example, the role of the Catholic Church uh, within uh, empire, to what degree was Irish Catholicism acting as a support system for British imperialism, or was it acting indep independently of this. Uh, so that Ireland had been brought into the story in the Marxist critique as well, uh, particularly by David Quinn and by Kenneth An Andrews. These, these are the two historians of the early modern period who were very committed to the left and who were rewriting the Victorian version of Elizabethan adventure by representing people like Raleigh and Drake and uh, 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 Gilbert uh, as people who were in, more interested in plunder and piracy and uh, in betterment rather than the creation of an empire. And they were emphasizing also that most of their experiments came to nothing. Uh, but uh, the, the engagement that they were engaged upon might be summarized is Trade, Plunder and Settlement, which was one of the titles of Kenneth Andrews' book. But Ireland came into the picture because many of these adventures had been engaged in Ireland, and therefore Ireland was perceived in this respect as part of the colonial process. Another important publication which brings us to the historiography was Edward Said's Orientalism, which was published in 1978, and his Cultural and Culture and Imperialism, published in 1983. Uh, Said, as you know, was engaged in literature. Uh, he believed that you learned more about empire by reading literature than looking at the sources that historians had been using, uh, that empire was a power relationship, and that the literature in relation to empire was a depiction by the West of a, a false image of the Orient. 
Uh, but in, in relating to Ireland, when Ireland comes into the picture in that he represented Ireland as one of the areas that had been colonised and he invited uh, people in literature in Ireland uh, to uh, respond to the challenge of uh, that, that a colonised country should be engaged upon, a challenge which t was taken up by uh, the Field Day Anthology of Irish Writing. Uh, but that, in a sense, was a very narrow nationalist publication and that it doesn't say much about Ireland and empire it represents Ireland as a place that was colonized rather than as a place that Irish people engaging in empire itself uh, but nonetheless because it was representing Ireland as colonized it provoked a reaction from the unionist population in that looking particularly what had been written in, uh, on uh, French Algeria, that colonization provided uh, an invitation to decolonization. And as a consequence of that, one of the bizarre features was that in the Unionist tradition, where it was always represented that Ireland had been colonized, and in the historiographic Unionist tradition, going back to Cart, Charles Smith, Leyland Froude, uh, that Ireland and empire was always regarded as a single whole and that there was a pride that the unionist population should take in their participation in empire. Suddenly, in the second half of the 20th century, there was a denial on the part of some of the unionist population that Ireland had ever been colonised at all. Uh, so, uh, and uh, at that juncture, uh, that people in inconsistently be, the same people began to describe themselves as British rather than Irish. Uh, and uh, as a final point, and I'm sure I'm well past my three minutes, <laughs> uh, uh, the, 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 on, from the nationalist point of view, particularly from the Catholic nationalist point of view, there was a denial from the 17th century that Ireland had been appropriately colonised. Uh, but there was not a denial uh, that there was anything wrong with colonization as such. There was an objection to Irish people being identified as ethnics, but there was no objection to Irish people engaging in missionaries, uh, as Catholic missionaries in other empires throughout the world, and there was no criti critiques of those empires. So then in that sense, on the national side, are, and particularly in the Catholic nationalist side, there is always a distinction between criticizing the British Empire and being generally supportive of the notion of empire, whether it is in the Roman sphere or in contemporary sphere, that it was part of God's plan and that empire provided people with an opportunity for evangelizing populations that had not heard the word of God previously. So with that, I'll hand you over to Jane Olmark. <laughs> Thank you, Nicholas. <laughs> Well, it was only three minutes, I might add. Clock started. Clock started. Listen, that was fantastic. What a great introduction to what we're going to be talking about. So my name's Jane Olmeyer, Professor of Modern History here in Trinity. Um, I've been working on Empire and Ireland for, I suppose, about 30 years now. And it's really only in the last three or four years, you know, we've sort of got a, a, a topic of interest uh, beyond the uh, academy. I contributed to the 1998 volume and then Kevin Kenny's 2021, uh, sorry, uh, uh, 2004 volume. Uh, and so I've been dipping in and out, but the invitation to give the four lectures uh, back in 2021 was really a spur to me to sort of really crystallize my thinking around Ireland and empire. 
And really to think of it, um, uh, it, it when Ireland is at peace, uh, when despite the best efforts of Brexit and all of that to, to destabilise things, but, but also at a moment when uh, conversations about empire have become extraordinarily fraught. Uh, uh, so it was just, and, and obviously that began really in an Irish context with the murder of George uh, Floyd, uh, and then whole statues must fall. So I, it, that all came together uh, uh, as the invitation to give the Fords. Uh, and, and I thought, well, this is an opportunity to just take a step back and look at how empire, primarily the English empire, made Ireland. But it's not just uh, the English empire. And folks, for me, it's an English empire, not a British empire. And we can come back to that if you want. Um, I'm very interested, of course, then how the Irish made empires the British Empire, the French Empire, the Spanish Empire, the Portuguese Empire. Uh, uh, but, but, but a lot of my work focuses primarily uh, on the English and, and later British Empires. And I'm very interested in, uh, in, in India. Um, the third big theme that I was keen to cover in this book was how empires, again, especially the British Empire, has influenced, um, life, in, or influenced life in early modern Ireland. Uh, our landscapes, um, the, uh, our thinking, um, uh, but also fashions and foodstuffs, um, as well as how memory of empire and what we remember and what we forget uh, uh, has uh, come through to, to the present day. So that's what I try to do in the Ford Lectures, and obviously the book is very much the six lectures, uh, with an apparatus criticus uh, and a bibliography. Um, and I think, uh, Nicholas, I'm going to close uh, there because um, then I'm under my three minutes and, and I'm, I'm feeling virtuous. But uh, 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 I'm really excited about this discussion uh, today. Okay, Michal. Uh, uh, <coughs> thanks. Do I have a Nicholas three minutes or a real three minutes, Nicholas? Again, I'll, three minutes. I'll go over Jane three minutes. Um, so thank you very much for inviting me along. Uh, and just like Jane, I've been working on Empire for about four or five months now, so I, I feel very uh, uh, up, to, up to speed with everything that's going on. Um, and, and, and really, I suppose the reason I'm here is I am, uh, as Nicholas alluded to, about to start uh, a big project actually in about 10 days with colleague Dave Brown, who's sitting down the back there somewhere. Um, uh, so it's a, a, a four-year funded project, and it's, it's taking, I suppose, a, a slightly different approach um, to what I've seen, uh, much of the Empire Studies to date, uh, and, and really, to, to, to start out, I'm not really interested in the Irish in Empire. Uh, there's lots of people working on that, there's some excellent work being done on it uh, by Jane and colleagues here uh, as well. But I'm actually really interested in, in Ireland's role in basically the foundation and the growth of the English stroke British Empire from the mid-17th century through uh, to the 18th century, and, and simply put, the hypothesis, which we'll have to prove, but uh, I'm fairly confident we can do it, is that there would have been no English Empire without Ireland. Uh, and quite simply, uh, the reason for that is, of course, follow the money and its economics. Uh, and what we're seeing is that in that early crucial stage in the late decades of the 17th century and early 18th century, it's Ireland that essentially provides the rocket fuel, shall we say, to uh, allow uh, and facilitate the extraordinary uh, uh, growth of the English and what becomes the British Empire uh, throughout the early modern period. And, and really what kickstarts it is, of course, something that I have been working on for, for a number of decades, which is the Cromwellian conquest uh, of Ireland and the subsequent land settlement. 
which provides an extraordinary amount of land, uh, which uh, uh, the English very quickly monetize through mortgages, securities, using it to raise loans uh, and selling it, and providing an enormous amount of money, which they then subsequently uh, invest in sugar, in slaves, uh, and in uh, trade with India uh, and elsewhere. And it's Ireland that also provides uh, much of the food that's feeding these plantations. It's Irish manpower that's also then providing uh, much of the, the, uh, the physical labour for us. And Ireland itself is an enormous market for imperial goods coming back into Europe as well. Uh, and so the argument simply, again, is that what gives England a decisive advantage over its continental uh, uh, um, uh, neighbours, such as France and Spain, is Ireland. Uh, none of them have an Ireland. Uh, and what we're going to be doing is, and we've been collecting together, all the financial information, the budgets, the uh, uh, customs tallies, everything relating to the monies around empire in these crucial early decades to show uh, just how important and central Ireland is. And, and as I said, most of the work to date is always focusing on the Caribbean and on the tobacco plantations in, in Virginia and elsewhere. Uh, and all of these are absolutely insignificant compared to the volume of money being generated through Ireland in a series of means. So as I said, we haven't proved it yet, I've proved nothing. Uh, so I, I, I can't uh, absolutely here give you the definitive results, but that's what we are setting out to work on over the coming years uh, and to bring Ireland as distinct from the Irish back into the centre of the empire story. Thank you. Thank you, Ron. And we now have Fanula. Thank you, um, Nicholas, and thank you for the invitation, Jane. Um, I suppose, basically, I work on the history of design and the history of design of property in particular, starting with the country house and its estate or the designed estate and um, how that translates into different environments. Um, so the arising out of that interest, I have started looking at the design of property in plantation landscapes and in different environments to Ireland. Um, I'm also very interested in the, in the explosion of kind of a plantation landscapes and um, is also in the explosion of the design of islands and, and comparative plantation islands designed by different empires. Why do you end up with such different landscapes and how does the design reflect the mentality of particular empires? Um, so I'm not originally a historian, I'm an architect, so I tend to approach things spatially. So I'm also very interested in how different scales affect design so that you, you can design something at the scale of a country house, which translates very well. Um, but you're also designing islands or, or empires at larger scales, which involves larger pieces of infrastructure, um, typically large pieces of engineering, particularly by the French. Um, I have been very interested also in letter series because I like finding motives and um, large, um, large pieces of politics I find very difficult. Um, so I tend to read long letter series and within letters between people who are equal you can find all, tease out all the contradictions of the age of revolutions when people are espousing such wonderful ideas, such wonderful principles but at the same time they're creating very ugly environments in other parts of the world. So, so that tension between very aesthetic concepts like the landscape garden, like the landscape painting, 
um, like uh, you know a mahogany wardrobe, or you know how how do people design when, with the with the knowledge, um, with the very severe moral knowledge that that other people are being victimised to produce this. Um, so that's what I've tried to do in my work, and I, I look at sources, maps, landscape paintings, and um, long letter <coughs> series between equals, ideally, that will help me write that story for different empires. And, and then comparing the mentalities of these diff different empires, I find very fascinating. And then how it impacts somewhere like Haiti today, that long legacy, that long history is, is appreciable in its landscapes and in the, the problems it has in the current time. Thank you. Thank you very much. And now Kieran O'Neill is going to talk where we're to go in the future. Is that right? Well, I don't know about that. Yeah. I'll, I'll talk anyway. Yeah. Um, so uh, I want to kind of come back to the book and think about it as, a, as an intervention in the field and also a kind of a staging post in its maturation. So I think what's really interesting about Jane's book uh, is that it's the first in a number of senses. It, it's the first sort of trade, ac trade academic book uh, which, which talks about Ireland and empire and colonialism um, and will likely sell copies in doing so. It's, it's priced at 37 euro, that might seem an incidental thing, but actually it's really crucial. And what it shows you is that the academic field, which has been one way or another building up since a sort of mid-90s peak of, of academic scholarship on Ireland and Empire, and it's now reached the point where there's a critical public interest in it as well as a, a critical mass of academic studies. And it means that a book from a leading Irish historian like Jane can come along and both synthesize and maybe more crucially, point in new directions for research uh, and that you can see uh, into the future. Uh, and it sort of uh, allows a, a, a whole new context of graduate work to emerge from it as well. So I think it's really significant for that reason. It, it also is significant for centering uh, female and everyday experience in empire. A lot of the work, the historic work done in empire and colonialism in Ireland is, is elite in, in, in loads of different ways. Uh, this book uh, does both and does it really effectively. Um, so, so my main interest, I suppose, in, in empire uh, comes, I'm a modernist, by the way, so I really shouldn't be up here at all because I'm a 19th centuryist in some respects. Um, but I, I, my interest comes from my job title. So, so I'm actually, my full job title here is uh, Usher uh, Lecturer in Irish, British, and, and uh, Ireland, Britain, and the Empire. That's what I was hired to teach. So one way or another, I've been teaching Ireland and Empire since I came here as a result of that. Um, and I, I think what's interesting about the book as a sort of teaching document is it, it achieves a number of things that are really useful and helpful in the classroom. Uh, so myself and Patrick Walsh, we teach a, a class here on Ireland Empire and Ireland Colonial Legacies. And what you can see, one of the things that Jane's doing really effectively in the book is she's talking about cultural uh, and experience-led um, exposure to, to empire, right? So, so there's a lot about paintings in here. There's a lot of uh, close visual work as well as an awful lot of analysis of, of theatrical productions around town and so on. And so it, it's a moment of transcendence for us as students of the Irish relationship to empire that we begin to also think about it in those informal as well as formal ways. The last thing I want to say is think about the book's utility as a document in, a, in the present and in the political present. And Jane sort of touched on this very briefly. Um, so uh, along with two colleagues of mine here in Trinity, we run the Trinity's Colonial Legacies Project. Uh, so Mobi Hussein and Patrick Walsh. And it's been really interesting to do work on Ireland and colonialism in public contexts. Some of you would have seen the public campaigns we've run as part of that project. Uh, they've involved uh, the legacies of various legacies connected to Bishop George Barclay, 
also the various con uh, legacies connected to human remains collected uh, and stored here in Trinity College, Dublin, uh, which emerged from Ireland's entanglement with empire and, and colonialism. And I suppose what's interesting about doing that work in public is that you can see there is a rich interest in it in wider society, but also that it's intrinsically political. It's, it's a political sort of statement to center Ireland in relation to colonialism active, as opposed to simply a unidirectional victim of colonization, which of course is part of the story, but not all of the story. So standing back and looking at this moment of publication, this book coming out and emerging into a popular market, I think we're at this really, really interesting intersection of public and academic interest. And I think it really sort of sets the scene uh, for a really interesting few years ahead. So <laughs> it remains for me to thank the members of our panel to congratulate Jane and Fanula and Kieran on their respective volumes and to wish the best of luck to Nihal. <laughs> 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 <laughs>